Hi, my name is Jana Metzger. Welcome to the Gospel House. Our mission here at the Gospel House is to show the world that the gospel of Jesus Christ is enough. That in the gospel, we can find all of our deepest needs met as the entire church responds to and applies the implications of the gospel. We would love to show it with you. Check out our website, www.thegospel.house, where you can learn more about us, find out how to connect with us, ask questions, see when and where our next meeting is, and give to help advance the gospel message of Jesus Christ. I have been loving this sermon series uh, on the book of Romans. Um, I, I, you know, I always make this mistake, but we get into these things, and Romans 8 is such a power-packed passage, and I, I think, you know, I'm finally going to break out, and I'm, this is going to be Pastor Jeremy's, like, encouraging series, where I just go heavy on encouragement and light on the persecution, and, you know, but it never seems to work out that way. That's just not how God talks to me. I, I get heavy conviction on just about everything, so. Um, but this has been good, um, and I actually, the Holy Spirit has been teaching me a ton through this sermon series. Um, I typically go into a sermon and I, I have an idea of what I'm going to say, uh, but I always love it when he kind of takes me on a direction that I'm not really planning on going uh, because I know that I'm not the one writing it, right? Like when, when he takes me in a direction that I don't anticipate, I know that it's really him driving the car and I'm just along for the ride. Um, but, you know, I, I really, when I started this sermon series, kind of like I said, I did not expect to be hit with such a weight in all of these promises. Um, you know, we, we look at the promises of God as these encouraging and uplifting things, and they are. But, you know, every single week since we started this series off with Romans 7, we've, we've seen that there's a double edge on the sword of these promises, that there is a hope and an encouragement that we walk in in the promises, but there's always also an expectation in how the promises require us to live. Um, that if we truly are walking in the promises of God, it's going to change what our life looks like, and it's going to change how we walk with Jesus. Uh, that started way back in Romans 7 when we talked about, you know, what is the expectation from God? What's the expectation from Jesus on his disciples? Are we to live this life without sin? And did God really say that Christians are not supposed to sin? And the answer to that is yes, he did. And the expectation is when we are walking in the Spirit that we would be capable of living lives without sin. Our problem is that we don't walk in the Spirit enough, right? When we do lapse and when we do fall into sin, it's not inevitable, but we, we fall into our old way of doing things, the flesh way of doing things. And what's been interesting is in that Romans 7 passage that we hit on at the very beginning, it's really led us right into Romans 8, and all of these encouraging and uplifting passages, they keep coming back to this same thing, that the promises of God are intended to empower us to walk in the Spirit. The promises of God, therefore there is now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. The Spirit who raised Jesus from the dead lives in you. All who are being led by the Spirit are sons and daughters of God. Those are the three we've talked about thus far. And what all of those things do, they're great promises. They are great promises to walk in. But we cannot ignore the fact that when we walk in those promises, it leads us to walk in the Spirit. And it leads us to stop walking in the old way of doing things, the flesh, the way of sin. And so all of these promises, y'all, 
all of them. And this, I, this is something that, you know, I, I knew, but I didn't see the connection until we started diving into these. But all of the promises of God, while they're great, they should be pulling us away from this world and into this spirit-filled, spirit-led life to where as we walk in his promises more and more, we start to walk in the spirit more and more. Unfortunately, we get this twisted, don't we? We get a lot of people who preach the promises of God as a way to tether you more and more to this world, right? That the promises of God really, you know, are, are to get you stuff in this world, not to point you toward the next. And as we'll see today, there is a severe temptation to use today's promise to do the same. Because today we are looking at, did God really say the best is yet to come? I have been in a lot of church business meetings, y'all. I have hated every one of them. <laughs> but it's, it just, it, it, to me, it contradicts, right? The whole reason, not, maybe not the whole reason, but one of the reasons Jan and I started the Gospel House is, like, I, I was really burnt out on the church being run as a business, and so we have, we just had our business meeting here at the Gospel House. If you attended, congratulations. It's my least favorite Sunday of the year. <laughs> For that reason, though, it's, that, that contradicts itself to me because church shouldn't be a business. Jesus didn't start the church to be a business. But unfortunately, there are aspects of the church that need to be run as a business because at the end of the day, we fill out IRS tax forms just like everybody else, and we've got to keep our nose clean so that Uncle Sam doesn't come knocking on our doors and ask me for receipts I forgot to save and, you know, all that marvelous stuff. But the church as a business, and in all of these business meetings, you get the pastor who comes up, and he casts this grand vision and almost always, almost always tags this little line in there. The best is yet to come. Meaning, man, you thought last year was good. <laughs> this year, it's going to be even better. We're going to ask everybody to increase their giving just a little bit more. And every person on staff here at this church is going to get a brand new car. It's going to be the best is yet to come, y'all right? I know I'm exaggerating. That's a little bit of hyperbole there. But that's what we mean, right? And so we get up there and we pitch these, you know, visions and everything. The best is yet to come, meaning, man, life is so good, but it's going to get even better. And if you've been walking through valleys, don't you worry. Those valleys are going to be over in no time and you're going to head to that mountaintop. And, and that's what we preach, right? Those are the encouraging, uplifting messages we need. If you're in a valley right now, the mountaintop's coming. But guess what? There are characters in God's word, and the mountaintop never comes on this side of heaven. Right? There are characters that you know in your life, and that mountaintop has been waiting a long time, hasn't it? There are some of you... <laughs> And it just feels like valley after valley after valley. And the problem is we listen to this and we listen to these encouraging and uplifting sermons that say, your mountaintop is coming, you just got to speak to those mountains and you just got... And it starts to wear down, doesn't it? And all of a sudden your faith starts to shake a little bit. And you start to question, hold on, is any of this legit? And I would pose, it is like... It is legit, 
But the problem is that that's not what this teaching is. When Jesus says the best is yet to come, and God did promise that the best is yet to come, but he did not intend for that best to be here on this earth. And as long as we keep waiting for our mountaintop experiences on this earth, I would venture to say we've missed the point entirely. Because when God says the best is yet to come, his aim is entirely different than what our aim is. So let's talk about it. First, we are going to look at the groan of creation that Paul talks about. Second, we are going to look at at a taste of what is to come. And then third, we are going to look at the unseen hope that we have. So first up, the groan of creation. And I very much love this topic. This is one of the one thing that I think we as Christians, we know, but we don't know. Like we see it and we know the theology of it, but we don't chase the implications nearly enough. This is what Paul says in Romans 8. He says, For the eagerly awaiting creation waits for the revealing of the sons and daughters of God. For the creation was subjected to futility, not willingly, but because of him who subjected it, in hope that the creation itself also will be set free from its slavery to corruption into the freedom of the glory of the children of God. For we know that the whole creation groans and suffers the pains of childbirth together until now. What in the world is Paul talking about? You guys ever have those moments when you're reading the letters of Paul? All right, Paul's kind of confusing sometimes, let's be honest. What's he talking about? All of creation groans? For what? Us to get our junk together. Right? That's what Paul's saying. All of creation is groaning for human beings to get their stuff together. Get it together, y'all. All of creation. Because all of creation, in Genesis 3, we read this fascinating story about Adam and Eve. Are you familiar? Right? And the fall of man happens. And when we read Genesis 3, like we do with most of the Bible, we are such selfish individuals, aren't we? Because when we read Genesis 3, we only apply it as far as the end of our nose. Because the Bible is all about me, right? (laughs) Wrong! Right? And in Genesis 3, the fall of man impacted way more than human beings. The fall of man literally affected everything. All of creation was subjected to slavery that day. We literally ruined everything. How's that for encouraging and uplifting, right? But look, this is the curse that God speaks over Adam. To Adam, he says, Because you have listened to the voice of your wife and have eaten from the tree about which I commanded you, saying, You shall not eat from it. Cursed is the ground because of you. With hard labor you shall eat from it all the days of your life. Both thorns and thistles it shall grow for you. You shall eat the plants of the field. By the sweat of your face you shall eat bread until you return to the ground, because from it you were taken. For you are dust, and to dust you shall return." This is the curse, right? Which means, what, what, is, what does a curse mean? When God curses Adam and says, hey, this is how it's going to be from you from now on, right? 
We talked about this last year during our Easter sermon series. But, but one of the things we miss with curses is that this was not the way it was meant to be, right? That's what a curse is. When God curses something, he's saying, hey, you were supposed to work this way, but you didn't want that, so now it's going to work this way. You see how this works? All of creation was made to work with man. Hecklingers, wouldn't that be absolutely lovely if you didn't have to water your plants every single morning at the greenhouse? Because creation was supposed to work with man. Guys, all of creation. Can you imagine that? The tomato plant saying, hey, Mark, sleep in today. I'm going to water myself. And that's how it worked. Because creation worked with man to bear fruit. But then... Adam and Eve decided, you know what, God? We actually know how to do it better than you. That serpent planted that little seed. Did God really say? And Adam and Eve decided, you know what? I think we can do this better than God. And so God cursed nature and said, I know that you were supposed to work with man to bear fruit, but now... Everything you do is to work against him. I want you to make him work for it. By the sweat of his brow, he's going to make this fruit come forward. And even when he does, the only thing that's going to grow are thorns and thistles. Can you imagine how frustrating that be? That would be, right? How frustrating would that be if your creation, if your nature, all of the rest of nature... And God says, hey, listen, I know that you were made to do this, but I am telling you from now on, you cannot do it. You cannot do the thing which you were created to do. How frustrating would that be? Right? I mean, some of you all know how frustrating that is because you've had a job that you absolutely hate and you sit there and think, I was not made to do this, right? Working on an assembly line, right? You hate it, right? I think about that sometimes when I'm balancing the budget here. God, I was not created to do this, right? It's a good thing that I do, though, because <laughs> we wouldn't be on operation very long if we didn't have a balanced budget. But we know what that's like to some degree, to not be doing what we've been created to do. We also know what it's like in some degree. For those of you who have started walking in the calling that God has called you, you know what that feels like, Right? When you are doing what you know God has created you to do, there is nothing in the world like it, right? You feel like you could do it for years and years and years, decades, and not get tired. You got to kind of scale yourself back, right? Because sometimes you get caught in like, whoops, doing a little too much, right? But it's, it's because it's fun. It's because you feel alive when you do it. And if you don't feel that way, can I challenge you? You need to find what God's called you to do and you need to start doing it. Because when you start operating in his calling, there is nothing like it in the world. Nothing like it in the world. But on that day, God pronounced over creation, you can no longer do what you've been called to do. Now, see, that's the funny thing with nature. In the creation story, when God creates everything, there is only one being that God breathes the breath of life into, humans. The only being 
that has that breath of life given to them, the only being that is made, and God says, let us make man in our image. We're the only ones. Humans are the only ones, which means that God gives us a free will, a will to do what we want. Adam and Eve used that free will to disobey God. Now, the rest of creation does not have that choice, right? There's that worship song. You guys know that worship song by Hillsong. We've sung it here a couple times. Uh, if the stars were made to worship, so will I. You guys know that song, right? But, but, but like that's the whole premise of that song, right? The stars, the waves, the ocean, all of creation, the wind goes where God tells it. Everything in nature does what God tells it to do. There's no other choice. Humans are the only one who were given a choice and we willingly disobeyed. And we still willingly disobey. But guys, look at the promise. The promise is that this is not how it's going to end. Right? Because when all of creation groans for the adoption of the sons and daughters of God, what that means is that there will come a day. Nature, guys, forget about the promise to you. The promise God gives to nature is that someday these knuckleheads will get their act together and everything is going to be set right again. And when everything comes back into harmony and when we start obeying God the way we were meant to, not out of force, but willingly obeying God, then all of creation can rest. All of creation can reset into how it was originally designed to operate. Christians, we ought to be the biggest tree huggers in the world, right? Because God made nature to work with us. But we've got to get back to that. And we don't do that by planting trees. And we don't do that by hugging them or by, you know, going green or whatever. I mean, I'm not saying those are bad things. You can go as green as you want. It's not against the Bible. But we go get back to that. We restore creation by being obedient to God. Do you, you want climate change? Obey God. Because then God will set everything back. God will restore everything and everything will work the way that it's meant to. Is your head spinning yet? <laughs> and guys, this is just part of the promise. It's just part of it. But the, don't miss the main point. God will make a way back. God already has made a way back. And that was through Jesus Christ. And now we, more than anyone else in the history, the Old Testament didn't have this, we have the Holy Spirit living inside of us so that we can be obedient to God, so that we can be the sons and daughters of God. And creation can start to be restored. And this is only a taste of what is to come. And it's important to see who Paul says is our taste of what is to come. Who is it? It's a person, right? Paul says a person is the taste 
of what is to come. And that person is the Holy Spirit. And obedience is the taste. You want to see what heaven's like, y'all? Walk in obedience to the Holy Spirit. Now, this is funny because our culture doesn't like this, right? We live in the United States of America where freedom is the utmost of all values. Freedom trumps everything else. And so in a culture like that where freedom is above everything else, and I'm not saying freedom is a bad thing, but there's limits. In a culture where freedom is, trumps everything else, it's impossible to see how obedience can be a good thing because we are so focused on doing things our way. We are so focused on having my freedom to make my choices. And the reality is, obedience requires me to give that up, doesn't it? My life is not my own anymore. I've signed that off, and I've told Jesus, I'm following you. You get a call, all the shots. I am yours. Obedience is what heaven is going to be like, though, y'all. Right? Now, now we love, again, this is a very Western teaching. We love to gloss up the freedom in Christ and the, all the stuff. And I'm not saying there isn't freedom in Christ. There is. But when you go through, it's funny because certain translations of the Bible, we were talking about this at our men's Bible study, different translations of the Bible, they sneak their theology in through the translation. Right? And so there's a bunch of passages, that, especially Paul, that he talks about, where he talks about being a slave to Christ or becoming a slave to righteousness. So the funny thing is, God calls us to freedom, and we are set free indeed, free to walk into slavery to Christ, right? And, and so, but, but here's the thing, and so some translations will soften that. They take out that word slave, and they'll put in something like soft, like, oh, now we're obedient to Christ. Now we gently follow Christ. And there's the message that, you know, makes it super flowery and weird. Don't read the message, please. But, You leave slavery to sin, and in true Christianity, you become a slave to Christ, which means you're still not your own. Where sin used to call the shots in your life, you're changing out that owner for a new owner. Now, the blessing is that God doesn't call you a slave, does he? We, Paul says, I'm a slave, we might call ourselves slaves, we might look at ourselves as slaves, but God calls us sons and daughters, which is incredible. We talked about that promise last week, so I'm not going to beat that up. But y'all, look at the tie-in that we have here. This is the tie-in that I've talked about every single week, right? All of these promises, if you're paying attention to the right thing. The promise comes, the best is yet to come, that's the promise, right? But the purpose of that promise is to draw us away from this life. So when we say a taste of what's to come, if we say a taste of yet to come, and that to come is in this world, we've missed it. The taste of what's to come, the Holy Spirit working in us, which is the taste of what's to come, should be drawing us to the next life, not this one. This gets so backwards in charismatic churches, y'all, because we get so focused on the works of the Holy Spirit and the power of the Holy Spirit and all of these things that we focus on what it can do for me now, right? It's God's will to heal you now. 
It's God for, God's will for you to be healed perfectly now. And so we have these healing services and people dance around and throw sweaty you know, handkerchiefs on other people and people rise and walk and all the stuff and we celebrate those things. But ladies and gentlemen, the purpose of the Holy Spirit is to point you away from this life and to the next. Does that mean that God doesn't heal people? No, absolutely not. We've seen God heal people in this body. But does it mean that God's ultimate purpose is to heal you in this life? No. And if the Holy Spirit isn't pointing you that direction, guess what? You're not listening. This is not the Holy Spirit's pointing you in the wrong direction. <laughs> right? The Holy Spirit doesn't mess up. He doesn't make mistakes. But if the gifts, if the fruit, if the workings of the Holy Spirit are tying you closer to this life, you're not listening to the Spirit, right? I, I had a conversation with somebody once. Maybe you guys have had a conversation like this. But, you know, it was a hard conversation. Anybody had hard conversations? Like, was not looking forward to it. Spoke a lot of correction, like, a lot of things like, hey, you've got to get better at this. Like, these are some areas. You don't look like Jesus. We need to work on these things. I got home, and, and you know, later that day, Jana got home, and she's like, man, I heard your conversation went really well. I was like, what? She's like, yeah, you know, I, I just heard that they were really encouraged by what you spoke to them and da-da-da and like all this stuff. What? Were they listening to anything I said? But we do that, don't we? Selective listening, right? I have selective listening a lot when Jana asks me to do the dishes and stuff like, I swear I didn't hear you. I didn't hear anything like that. But we do that, don't we? And we do that with the Holy Spirit. We do that with God's word. You know, and, and that's part of the problem, y'all, when we comb through the word and we only want to be encouraged. Right? God's word is so encouraging and uplifting and we only go to it for encouragement. If you only have people in your life that speak encouragement, you've got cheerleaders, but you have got nobody that can make you look more like Jesus. We live in a world that loves cheerleaders. We love fans, people who tell us that we always do the right thing, people who tell us our own poop doesn't stink, right? To use a colloquialism. But y'all, we need people who will speak hard truth to us. You know, I've told you all this. I get worried if I go more than a couple of days reading my word and God doesn't correct me on something. I want the Holy Spirit to speak correction to me. I don't want him to just encourage me. There's a whole lot of people who are going to be encouraged straight to hell. Because encouragement will not change you, but correction will. And that's what the Holy Spirit is here to do for us. He's here to make us look more like Jesus. Which means he's not here to make this life comfortable. Look at what Paul says in Romans 8, verse 23. He says, not only that, but we also we ourselves, having the first fruits of the Spirit, even we ourselves grown within ourselves, waiting eagerly for our adoption as sons and daughters, the redemption of our body. Now, he calls the Holy Spirit, what we have of the Holy Spirit right now anyway, as the first fruits, right? What are first fruits? This is Old Testament principle. I'm challenging your Old Testament Bible knowledge. What's the first fruits? It's the first of the harvest, right? 
So like in the Old Testament, there was a first fruits offering, which meant you went out into the field and the very first thing, now the first fruits offering, that was one of the riskiest, right? Because you didn't know what was coming in after the first fruits. So you had to go out and harvest your crop and in faith, you had to give 10% of that or whatever it was. I think it was 10%. But you, you had to give that first fruits offering, not knowing if anything was coming after. That'd be a little scary, wouldn't it? I mean, conventional wisdom would say, take all that stuff and set it aside, and then I'll give God 10% of the last fruits to make sure I get what he promised. But that's not how God works. But what isn't the first fruits? So if the first fruits is the very first of your harvest, what isn't it? It's not the whole thing, right? It's not the entirety of the harvest. So if Paul, speaking through the Holy Spirit here, is saying that what we operate in right now in the Holy Spirit is the first fruits of what's to come, what does that mean? That means that this is just a taste of what's coming, right? We haven't even seen the fullness of the Spirit, y'all, which should get you excited, right? So when we talk about like the healing and the miracles and, and the prophecy and the things that the Holy Spirit does now, that's just a taste of what's coming. When we get to heaven, y'all, the Holy Spirit's going to throw off the restraints and show us what he's really about. And it's going to be incredible. So my question is, are you settling for first fruits as the final harvest? Because if we're pursuing the gifts and the fruit and the workings of the Holy Spirit for just this earth, you're saying, I'm satisfied with this little bit. When God says, there is so much more, y'all, you haven't even scratched the surface of what I'm capable of. Stop focusing on the first fruits of the Spirit and focus on the fullness of what He's going to do in eternity. Paul says something very similar in 1 Corinthians 13. I know you're only supposed to read it at weddings, but at the end of 1 Corinthians 13, Paul says, For we know in part and we prophesy in part, but when the perfect comes, the partial will be done away with. Do you see how incredible this promise is? Y'all, perfection is coming. God has promised it. And all of the things that the Holy Spirit does now will pale in comparison when he finally comes in his fullness. All of the gifts, all of the fruit, everything that we make such a big deal about with the Holy Spirit, those are just a taste of what eternity with God is going to be like. But see, that's also the catch of this promise. You know, some people who would call themselves spirit-filled believers very much operate in the spirit only as much as it has to pertain to miracles in this life. Right? And, and we, we know this because, I mean, if you've been around the church for a while and you're familiar with church lingo, if somebody invites you to come to a spirit-filled church, 
you've got something in the back of your mind that says, okay, there's going to be some kind of funny stuff that happens, right? Typically, when people say it's a spirit-filled church, that means it's going to be charismatic stuff, people speaking in tongues, like, you know, all of that stuff. But guys, we've got to redefine what it means to be spirit-filled. Because what do we talk about in the very beginning? What's it mean to be spirit-filled? What's it mean when all of this creation groans and all this stuff? What is it? It's obedience, right? A spirit-filled, a spirit-led church should be the most obedient church the world has ever seen. And you know what? As far as miracles, and guys, can I be honest with you? I've prayed that. I've asked God when, when I, you know, I'm praying for the church and I'm asking God about the direction of the gospel house. I've asked him, like, God, what do you want more prophecies? Do you want people to stand up in service and yell out in tongues? Do you want us to do healings at the altar and, and you know, wave glory flags and tambourines and all the stuff? And guess what he's brought me back to every time? Jeremy, just be obedient. I'll do the rest. Just be obedient. Which means, guess what, guys? And, and can I tell you something? For me, that is such a weight off my shoulders. Right? And I think that that's part of the problem in some of these churches. We feel like we've got to manufacture a move of the Spirit. Right? And y'all, I've led worship for a long time. This, sounds, this is going to sound blasphemous, but I know how to manufacture a move of the Spirit. I know, as a music leader, you know what a key change does to people? I've, I've told this story before, but Jan and I went to a Tim McGraw concert a long, long time ago. Country music concert, right? Not, not Christian, not, I mean nothing remotely Christian about the message. Tim McGraw has this song called Live Like You Were Dying. I went skydiving, I went Rocky Mountain climbing, right? But in that song, there's a key change. And so at this concert, there's a key change. I went skydiving, and he does this key change, and all of the screens and all of the lights on the stage go white and shoot out into the crowd. And goosebumps, man, like, ah, it gives you chills. Guess what I can do as a worship leader? I can do the exact same thing, right? I can do these are the days of Elijah. Let's do a key change. These are, and you know, do the key change and everybody like, whoa, spirit's moving. No, it's just a key change. But that's what we do, right? That's what we do. And, and look, like it's emotional. Like there's an emotional response and God gave us those emotions for a reason. So can it be powerful? Yes. But can it be distracting? to a real move of God. Absolutely. There's this really, really convicting passage, and it doesn't convict, convict us nearly enough, but it's, it's actually an exodus when Moses comes down from Mount Sinai, and it's right after the Israelites had just made the golden calf, and Moses comes down, and because God says, hey, your guys are screwing up. You got to get down there and break this up, and he comes down, and Joshua is waiting for Moses at the mountain, and he says, Moses, like, we got to get over there. There's a sound of war breaking out in the camp, and Moses says, it's not a sound of war, it's a sound of singing. The Israelites had let their emotions get the best of them. They let emotionalism take over. You know what I see so much in the church today, y'all? We got these fancy worship bands, and I love our worship team up here, but I will be the first one, guys, if it starts getting out of control, I will get up here and stop it. Because if we are getting swept up into emotion, that is not worshiping the Spirit right? We have got to be so careful to walk that line. 
We cannot let ourselves get out of the way because that's not being spirit-filled. That's not being spirit-led. But when we do relax, y'all, when we let it off, when we, when we finally give up that control and I don't have to manipulate a response, guys, this is God's church. Do you know the freedom that gives me as a pastor? Guys, I don't have to break my tail to try to get people to fill the seats. I don't have to break my tail. I don't have to figure out ways to get y'all to prophesy in the middle of a service. If that's what God wants to do, and I am giving him control of this church, he's going to do it, right? There is rest in that, a glorious rest that we will never see. We'll never see if we are too busy trying to manipulate it on our own. But we have got to be obedient to the Spirit. And the great news is, if I'm obedient to the Spirit, I get to taste the first fruits of what's coming in heaven. Don't I? But this is hard. Can I tell you why it's hard? You guys ever seen, there was actually a Facebook thing going around a long time ago. We did it with promise. I hated it. Jana hated it too. (laughs) So and, and, and this is this is well studied sociologically and everything, but but deferred pleasure, right? So there's immediate so immediate gratification, and then there's deferred gratification. But there's this Facebook challenge going around where you took like a bowl of M and M's, and you put it on the couch, and you told your kid, now you can't eat these until mommy gets back, and then mommy goes to the bathroom, and you got to see if the kid sits there and waits to eat the M and M's. So we did it with Promise when she was really little. She just started weeping. She, like, because she doesn't understand it, you know what I mean? And so, so Jana says, like, puts the bowl of M&Ms and says, all right, now you got to wait. You can't eat these until mommy gets back from the bathroom. Okay? She says, okay. And she starts to reach for them. No, 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 not till mommy gets back from the bathroom. Okay. And then Jana leaves. And, okay. <laughs> and she just weeping. <laughs> and so Jana doesn't even go to the bathroom. Like, she immediately comes back and is like, okay, okay, you can eat them, you can eat them. But, but, you know, what that challenge is doing is it's drawing out this premise because we as humans are horrible at this. Defer, that's why so many people quit on their diets, right? That's why so many people quit on their New Year's resolutions. Because you are waiting for gratification that's coming in the future that you can't see. And so I would rather eat a ho-ho today when it tastes good in my belly and fills me up for five seconds then not eat a ho-ho and get a six-pack in six years, right? Let's be honest, that's what it is. We are horrible at this. God knows we are horrible at this. Because in order for us to put everything that we are in a hope that the best is yet to come, we hope in an unseen hope. Because that's what hope is, right? That's what Paul's saying when he says, For in hope we have been saved, but hope that is seen is not hope. For who hopes for what he already sees? But if we hope for what we do not see, through perseverance we wait eagerly for it. I said this at the beginning, but hope that is seen is not hope. Faith that is known is not faith. Hope that is seen is knowledge, right? Faith 
that is seen is fact. Not faith, not hope. Now listen, I've heard this a lot from, you know, you hear this from atheists quite a bit, people who don't believe in God. Well, you know, if God just, if he wants me to believe in him, he can just write his name in the sky and then I'll believe in him. Y'all, I don't have a good theological reason why God doesn't do it that way. But I do know that it has to do with faith and it has to do with hope. Because if God writes his name in the sky, there's no hope required. There's no faith required. And for some reason, and I I don't know that reason, I can't tell you the answer to this. I I could make something up to look smart, but I'm not going to. Because I don't know what the answer is. But for some reason, God has decided that faith and hope are two of the most important character traits he can build in his children. Two of the most important character traits. What's 1 Corinthians 13 say, right? That those are, those are in that list as the most important character traits that God can build in us. Now, I want to debunk something real quick since we're on the topic of atheism. There are a lot of atheists, a lot of people who have no belief, and I don't think anybody in this room is struggling with this right now, but in case you ever are or if you know somebody who is, there are a lot of people who put all of this pressure on Christians. Well, you have this unseen hope, and I, I I can't possibly believe in a God that I can't see. That's, that's, just, that's just absolute ignorance that you would believe in this. It requires just as much unseen faith, just as much unseen hope, and I would argue more, to believe in the things that everyone else believes in than to believe that there is a God who creates the universe. Just as much. Now, what, what tends to happen in these arguments is that this, this burden of proof gets pushed onto Christians. Well, you have to prove to me that God exists. But the reality is both sides have a burden of proof, right? So if you're ever, you know, we, we just talked about this at our business meeting, but on Wednesday nights in uh, April, we're going to start doing these apologetics classes. And these are the things we're going to be talking about, like when people, you know, question your faith, when they talk to you about, you know, why Jesus couldn't have existed or why God can't exist. These are the things, but, but the burden of proof is equal to both, all right? So let's, let's take the Big Bang Theory. You've got this Big Bang Theory, these two particles that collide, right? And then out of this, and, and so people who don't believe in God look at this Big Bang Theory and say, all right, well, you know, this, this is what happened. And, and they act as if that Big Bang is, trumps your burden of proof for God. The problem is you run into just as many problems in that scenario. So one of the questions you get on God is, well, where did God come from? To which the Christian answers theologically correctly and says, well, God has just always existed. And, (laughs) oh, you're so naive. You believe in that guy in the sky that's always existed. Well, so are you, buddy. Because you believe in these two particles that have always existed and just happen to collide. Where did the particles come from? And there's no good answer. Can I tell you something? There's no good answer for any of it. All of it requires faith. All of it requires hope. So when you talk to people who have these challenges of your faith that you believe in God, challenge their faith back. 
Ask them, you believe in the Big Bang Theory. Where did the, two part- or where did the particles come from that collided together? There's no good answer. Why can't those two particles collide again and cause another Big Bang and destroy us all? There's no good answer. Maybe it's coming. You never know. <laughs> right? But everyone has to have hope. I would much rather have hope that there is a God in heaven who created all of this, who loves me so much that he sent his only son to die for me, to forgive me of every wrong I have ever committed, and who with open arms welcomes me into his family. Y'all, that's the kind of hope I want. You want to have blind hope in the fact that all of this is chance and meaningless? That's a miserable hope. You wonder why people are so miserable today. It's a miserable hope. There's nothing to hope for in that. Christian, you have something to hope for. Give your hope to those around you. This is our hope. And it comes from the beginning of our scripture reading today. Paul says, I consider that the sufferings of this present time are not worthy to be compared with the glory that is to be revealed to us. This is our unseen hope. It's an incredible promise, isn't it? But it requires faith in something that we can't see yet. It requires hope in something we can't see yet. And let's be brutally honest. And Christian, we need to be a little more honest. There was a time when it was good enough in the Christian faith to tell people that they needed to believe and not ask questions. That used to be how the church dealt with a lot of stuff, right? You're not supposed to question God. Don't question God. As if God's scared of our questions, right? (laughs) Have you read the book of Job? Right? God's not scared of our questions, y'all. He's not scared of our questions. Even for you, Christian, in this room, God's not scared of your doubts. God's not scared. He's, he's bigger than all of it. Take them to him. We talked about these promises. If the Holy Spirit is living inside of you and there's something in the Bible that continually rubs you the wrong way, take it to him. Talk to him about it. Guys, there's passages in the Bible that I don't like. There are things that happen in the Bible, and I think, man, God, I really wish you wouldn't have done that. I don't like that you did that. So guess what I do? Oh, I keep quiet, and I stay in my lane, and I don't question. No. When I pray, I ask God, God, why did you do this? And there's some of the stuff he doesn't give me answers on. But there's other stuff that he does give me answers on. He says, Jeremy, your obedience is more important than this. And he shows me his ways. And in revealing his ways to me, guess what? I learn more about my father. And not once has God revealed any answer to me that I've been like, yeah, I can't do this anymore. Clearly, I'm still here, right? Never. Every time God's revealed an answer to me, it's drawn me closer to him. Even if I don't particularly like the answer, it's drawn me closer to him because I have a good God. But guys, God's not afraid of your questions. Bring them to him. But that also means that we've got to be real with people who aren't in the faith. Too many times we pretend that Christianity is easy. Too many times we pretend like, oh yeah, we've got it all together as Christians. And that's not the case. 
this is a hard promise to believe. Can we admit that? Look at this promise. Look, if you've never had anything bad happen to you, or if the worst thing that's ever happened to you is you stubbed your toe on a coffee table, then you don't struggle with a promise like this, right? Now look, we live, Western Christianity, we live in a part of the world, we are very blessed, right? Very, very blessed. It is so ironic to me that in America, the United States of America, we struggle with this knowledge of a loving God when there are people in war-torn countries absolutely starving, I mean, just torn apart, who don't struggle at all with a promise like this. In fact, they run, they sprint to a promise like this. But doggone, I didn't get that job promotion, so I can't possibly believe that there's a loving God who's going to work all things together for good. What? So can we be real? And I think part of the problem is, y'all, we've, as Christians in this Western world, we've, we've trumped this up like, well, don't, you can't question this. You can't, instead of just challenging people to go to God, to go to him with it. But the reality is, if you are suffering something, this is a hard promise to look at what you're going through right now and to have faith through it all that someday this is going to get better. That someday God's going to work this for good. And we're going to talk about that promise next week, maybe the week after. I can't remember when that one comes in Romans 8. But it's another good promise, great promise. But it requires hope in what we can't see, which is really, really difficult. When you're asking for faith from someone who's going through it, who's suffering. That is a whole different ball of wax than preaching faith to somebody who just wants to add another car to their garage. Isn't it? When you're asking for somebody to hold on to hope as they're walking through the midst of injustice, it's incredibly difficult. But Romans 8.18 is this unseen hope. And can I tell you, this is not a shallow hope, y'all. I think the reason that so many people in other parts of the world that go through tremendous suffering, far more suffering than you and I will ever go through in this lifetime, but I think part of the reason why they don't struggle with this nearly as much is because they don't get this shallow preaching that these promises are meant for this world but they know that this hope is beyond this world, right? That this hope is in the unseen, which is tied with Christ. Because guys, this is not our real world. For too long, we have tried to sell this God, to peddle this God, this genie in a bottle, right? God is this cosmic wishing star that we just make a wish on before we go to bed. And then we get all the things that we want. But guys, that God doesn't exist. And unfortunately, a lot of people in the United States right now have found out that that God doesn't exist. And it's burned them out on the idea of God entirely to where they've walked away from the faith. But Romans 8.18 can bring us back, y'all. 
those of you who have family members, those of you who have friends, loved ones who are struggling with faith, Romans 8.18 is that promise that can bring them back. But it requires hope in a world that we do not see yet. That Jesus Christ, that God is our hope. So, let me ask you a question. What do you do when you're short on hope? What do you do when your faith is lacking? There are a lot of people who will tell you what? Fake it till you make it, right? Or it's really funny when they faith it till you make it. <laughs> Bazing, right? Just have faith till you make it through, right? That's that American gospel, y'all. Just pull yourself up by the bootstraps. You can do it. You can't. Jesus says you can't, <laughs> right? But the answer, the real answer in the Christian faith is that we look to the gospel. When you are short on hope, when you are short on faith, you look to the gospel of Jesus Christ. I do not know what everybody in here is going through right now. I know that we have a few people at the gospel house who are severely hurting right now, who are being challenged who feel like their faith is being tested, their hope is being tested. We probably have even more people who don't want to admit what they're going through right now. We're silly like that, aren't we? I am silly. I do this all the time, y'all. I would rather suffer silently than tell anybody how I'm actually doing. I think I've confessed that to you on more than one occasion. (laughs) Right? I struggle with that. I struggle to let people in. I want people to think I have it all together, and I don't. I know there are way more than just me who feel that way, who don't want to let people in. But can I encourage you, whatever it is that you're going through, look to Jesus Christ. Even if everything's great right now, sunshine and rainbows, you've never had a bad day in your life. (laughs) Look to Jesus Christ. Because I can tell you, you will need him someday. Right? Right? Life has that way, doesn't it? Even if things are sunshine and rainbows now, here it comes. But look how Jesus held to hope. Look how Jesus held to faith. Jesus Christ knew God intimately. He knew his Father. He knew who his Father was. He knew everything that his Father had ever done. So Jesus knew without question what his father would do. So when Jesus' father asked him to go to the cross, when Jesus' father asked him to bear the weight of humanity's sin, sin that Jesus never committed, right? You talk about injustice. The only innocent man to ever walk the earth convicted of crimes that he never committed, bore the weight of crimes that he never committed. And in the midst of it, Jesus held out hope that the suffering his father was asking him to go through wouldn't even be worthy to be compared with the glory that was coming someday when all of the sons and daughters of God would finally be brought home. And y'all, after three days, God delivered on that promise, didn't he? And there is still 
an empty tomb that stands as the ultimate testament of God's faithfulness. That he will never fail to deliver on his promises. He didn't for Jesus, and he won't for you. And like we talked about last week, what he asked Jesus to walk through, he will never ask you to walk through anything near that level of suffering. You can hope. You can faith. Guys, I know it's scary, isn't it? It is so scary. I, I, I do this all the time, but you know, where, where expect the worst and you can never be disappointed, right? I, I mean, that, that could be like a life motto of Jeremy Metzger. They should hang it up above my bed, but not really, because it's not a good motto to live by. But guys, Jesus has given us abundant proof that we don't have to be afraid to put our hope in him. We don't have to be afraid to put our faith in him because God delivers every time. Amen? Amen. Thank you for listening to the Gospel House podcast. We pray that you were pointed to Jesus and will apply what you learned to look more like him each and every day. If you found today's message impactful, do us a favor and hit the follow button. Leave us a rating and write up a review to help others find our podcast. You can also help us by sharing the podcast so that together we can show the world that the gospel of Jesus Christ is enough. If you have any questions or comments, we would love to hear from you. Head to our website, www.thegospel.house connect, fill out the form, and someone from our Gospel House family will connect with you. God bless you, and remember, the gospel of Jesus Christ is always enough.